This episode of the School of Laughs podcast is brought to you by Patreon sponsor Ray Price. If you'd like to find out more about how you can help the podcast stay alive, please visit schooloflaughs.com forward slash Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thanks, Ray. Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by schooloflaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the show. This is Rick Roberts, and today I've got a fun interview with comedian John Branion from Indianapolis, Indiana area. Uh, John's a very funny guy. I met him maybe five, six, seven years ago, and uh, we've hit it off. He's a very creative mind, a great writer, and this is going to be a first of a multiple-part series with John. Uh, This interview, you guys get to know him a little bit, and listen for a follow-up interview where we give each other a comedy challenge further down the road. Before I get into the interview today, I would like to thank Ray Price for sponsoring the podcast through Patreon. Ray's a very funny comic from the Cincinnati area, and if you ever have a chance to see him, go check him out. I'll link to uh, anything I know about Ray in the show notes. But thanks, Ray, for sponsoring the podcast. We're about a third, almost a halfway to the goal I have set for the uh, monthly contributions to keep the podcast going. I appreciate everybody that's chipped in to support so far. If you're on the fence, been thinking about it, now's a great time to jump into it. Patreon.com forward slash School of Laughs to learn more about those opportunities. Uh, But I certainly appreciate that. Also, if you're in the Nashville area and you're interested in any of these two classes, uh, either of these two classes, you might want to register for them now before it's too late. I'll be doing a Business of Comedy seminar on June 12th. That's a Sunday. It'll be in the afternoon from 1 to 4 p.m. out in the Mount Juliet area, just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. I've got seven spots total available, and I think four are already booked up. So if you'd like to sit in on that, that's a three-hour or so workshop where we talk about all the nuts and bolts of running a stand-up comedy business as a profession and what to expect all along the way, everything from what comedians make to what comedians need for different parts of their career as far as promo, merchandise, how to approach bookers, very specific information for a variety of regional bookers as to how they go about looking for new talent and how to approach them very in-depth. We don't leave till every question is answered, and if I don't know the answer, I get on the phone and find out for you. So if you're interested in that, it's a $99 three-hour Sunday afternoon. That's on June 12th. And then the performance class is coming up right here in Nashville as well. That's June 13, 20, and 27. Those are Monday nights. They'll be downtown area Nashville from 6 to 8 p.m. And that's a performance class where you get on stage, perform a three-minute set, get feedback, critique, ideas, punchlines, tags, premise tweaks, all that kind of stuff from your fellow classmates, including me. And we do that three weeks in a row, so you can come in there three different weeks with three different three-minute sets and multiply that out, and you'll have a ton of good comedy. That's a great class. If you're interested in that, you can always check out the schooloflast.com website. You can just click the link there for live classes and learn a lot more. All right, let's jump into our interview today with John Branion. Uh, John, like I said, very funny guy, very creative dude, and we're going to jump into it right now. Well, I'm here with John Branion. How's it going there, sir? Peachy. John Rick, Brandon. how are you? You look, you look good. You look casual today. I am. I'm in my Johnny Cash t-shirt and uh-huh. uh, enjoying my last couple of days before uh, the busy weekend and start of next week, as you well know. 
I know all about that. I was. I'm glad I didn't wear my tux. I wasn't sure exactly how to dress. But. It's tough to dress for a podcast. I think the key is that you wear something, especially right. especially when you're Skype video calling. <laughs> well, it's annoying. The podcast is annoying because it is video. It used to be. Remember, podcasts were just audio, and so it didn't matter how you dressed. Usually, I was naked when I did them, but now. <laughs> Now what I do is I try to put important-looking artifacts behind me to make it look like I'm successful. Yeah, I couldn't find any. That, so this is what, what I've got is. right here. <laughs> it's the measure of your successes on the wall behind you. Good. That's right. Well, let me tell you what, man. I've, I've known you, it seems like, since 2008. It's pretty specific. Yeah, well, I think it was my first uh, CCA conference, Christian Comedy Association conference, and that was down in Murfreesboro, I believe it was. Were you at that one? Yeah. Okay, so that's why I've been at all of them except for two. I missed two. Well, that's cool. But I really don't know too much about the beginnings of John Brandy, like how you started out. I know that you were um, you were actually at my buddy Scott Long's first open mic when he started out. So you've been doing it at least that long. If, if oh, not I didn't know that was his first one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. He mentioned to me like you were at this very first time. So that's kind of cool. And he started in the late '90s, early maybe early '90s. Yeah, somewhere around that. So when did you start? Yeah, 1990. 1990. In November of 1990 was my first open mic. Okay, so we're actually pretty close. I started in, I think, May of 91 or something like that. Okay. You started in Indianapolis? I started in Indianapolis. I had no idea how to do it. I literally had no idea how comedy worked. I'd seen it on television. So I called the club and said, how do I, how do, I do this? And they said, well, you got to get on the list. And at that time, there was actually lists. Uh, and took a couple of weeks, and I went up and did it just to get it out of my system. I had no idea what I was doing. I didn't expect it to be any good. I just thought I would do it once, say that I did it, and that would be the end of it. But and but after that first time, you kind of liked it? You got a couple of laughs, maybe? I kind of liked it. I did way better than I thought I was going to do, and that's actually shocked me uh, when the audience responded the way they did. And then the guy who was running it... Uh, came up afterwards and said, that was your first time? And I said, yeah, that was my first time. And he said, you should come back because you, you're you pretty good. And so that little bit of encouragement coupled with the fact that I didn't have to drive anywhere. It was it was an hour from my house, which is further than a lot of people have to right. drive for five minutes of open mic time. But, you know, it was a fun hobby and I kind of got into the culture, you know, that open mic None of us know what we're doing, and we yeah. all keep our notebooks, and we all help each other with our sets, and nobody really understands what's. But I, I liked it, you know. I made friends with the other guys, and so I just kept coming back. And and who were some of the other guys there? I mean, because Indianapolis is a pretty, you know, a lot of people know it for the Bob and Tom show. Right. So every good comic comes to one of those three or four clubs to get on the show. Right. Yeah. You know, who were the local guys there? Well, that was the heyday. Uh, well, the local guys were. Uh, uh, Dave the King Wilson mm -hmm. was kicking around then. Uh, Dave Dugan. Oh yeah, Dave Dugan's uh, very funny. Uh, Randy Montgomery. Is it Randy the guy with the beard? Uh huh. Yeah, Randy was very funny too. Yeah, the both of those guys were real helpful when I was starting out. Super nice to me and just giving me, you know, feedback and criticism. Uh, let's see who else. A lot of guys are not doing it anymore. Um, Hank McGill was oh, yeah. uh, kicking around. Yeah, I remember Hank. Yeah, Hank, uh, he used to have like the the big flowery shirts, maybe or yeah, he had a big he, personality. He was about a, a year in front of me uh -huh. in in his comedy career. Uh, I can't think of any other names, but yeah, the, there was a lot of people that would come back 
um, even after they had made it, they were doing television sitcoms or whatever, and guys were kind of getting off the road. Mm -hmm. They would still come back to Indianapolis because the two rooms um, were were a rooms. Chicken Patty's rooms. Chicken Patty's rooms. Yeah. Yeah. Did you uh, know them? Yeah, it was funny. Uh, they ran the Downtown Comedy Connection and yeah. the what, what the, the Broad Ripple Comedy Club. Broad Ripple Comedy Club. Yeah. I remember doing uh, driving over there to do a guest set just to try to get some work. Yeah, and uh, I lived in Columbus, Ohio, so it was like a three-hour drive. Pull mm-hmm. in there, and it's maybe a Tuesday night or whatever. And there was like that really long room, the downtown. That's downtown. Yeah, was, like, that was the first room, room I ever did. Yeah, like yeah. a shoebox, and you're way up on that high stage. Yeah, and there's like two rows of people. It was like Tuesday night. There was like nobody there. Ten minutes before the show, and then when by the time the show got on, it was full. Right. And uh, he said, "Go up there, and uh, I guess we're just going to have you MC tonight." And so I didn't, you know, I'm like, okay. So I did 15 minutes. He goes, what are you doing the rest of the week? Wow. Really? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, uh, I don't really have any plans. I got a job, but I can drive back and forth. He goes, yeah, why don't you just MC the rest of the week? It seemed to work out pretty good tonight. <laughs> was that Chick? Yeah. And, Chick uh, was nice to you. He was, that? he was nice to me, but I can tell you what, he, that guy, he's one of those old school guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could probably tell some stories after the podcast that are mm-hmm. just those old school guys. Well, I'll just tell this one right now. Cause I just, is he still alive, Chick? Yeah. Okay, I'll I'll tell it after he passes. We'll skip that second. <laughs> but but yeah, he cut me a break and then you know he had the other club and uh my biggest concern was being able to, to find a parking spot, you know, because that downtown club yeah. you had to pull in that parking garage and you didn't know if you were gonna get compensated for it, but but it was fun. You didn't have stage fright, but you're worried about getting parking. Always. Mm-hmm. You know, especially when you're driving a two hundred dollar Nissan pickup truck. You <laughs> Yeah. They just, that just says tow me at any point. Well, what they taught me, what I learned from from the parents uh, was invaluable because they were really, really fussy about who they put on stage. And it, I'd never heard that story before. That kind of surprises me. Um, you must have been good. I got lucky. They, it wasn't that, I wasn't really that good. He, somebody must have just canceled. <laughs> they were desperate. Well, even even so, the, the opener slot a lot of times in some rooms doesn't matter. They'll just throw anybody up there, you know waiters or whatever mm-hmm. um but they were always really fussy about their opener slot in their middle and their headliner and they always tried to build the show so like they wouldn't have a dirty middle with a clean headliner or vice versa they always tried to put people together that sort of belong together right. um and they were they were pretty particular and so my style i had to develop actual material and you had to be pretty good because most of the people that were opening for them were middling or sometimes headlining in other rooms. Mm. Um, and so they just had really rigid standards. And so I was open mic for about three years before I ever actually got to work for them. Yeah, they had uh, they had quite the crew of people coming through there. Cause now mm-hmm. when when did the, the the Crackers Comedy Club out there at the was that the Keystone at the Crossing or whatever that was? Uh-huh. That so, was there the that, whole time. So that was there as well as those other two clubs. So when you first right. started, there was three clubs in Indy, full-time right. clubs. Well, and there was four if you counted Green uh, Greenwood down right. south. Dave Wilson's place. Wilson's place. So that's a pretty healthy comedy scene. And, mm-hmm. I, and a lot of that came out of that Bob and Tom culture, I think, too. Like I don't think yeah. four clubs could exist in a medium-sized city like Indy now. Right. Well, yeah, and everybody came through for Bob and Tom. Right. So, so when you, how long did you stay active in the clubs and how far along did you get in the clubs before you discovered that you wanted to do some Christian comedy, some stuff outside of the clubs? Uh, I never really, uh, I never really made that decision consciously. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, 
the only conscious decision I made was I had a wife and at that time, two kids. Um, and uh, I've added more kids, no more wives. But during, <laughs> during that time, I decided that I was, I was going to be there. I didn't want to be on the road because right. I had seen what the road was like. And it just, I wouldn't have done well out there. And so I stayed at those two clubs. And um, parents were really nice to me and always gave me time. I had, I had a week virtually every month for a couple of years. So I had a lot of stage time and uh, I stayed local. And so um, it wasn't until I started getting some phone calls from other places asking if I'd be willing to come and do this church, you know, banquet or VBS closing or some other horrible church basement gig. Um, And as long as I could get to it in a night and get home for my day job, I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. So I'd go for spaghetti dinner, gas money. Yeah. Um, And and it just sort of developed from there. It got to the point where I was getting – uh, phone calls in places that were further and further away. And I couldn't, I wasn't willing to go f- for spaghetti dinner and gas money if I had to drive five hours. Right. Know, so, so I started having to actually charge money. And um, I didn't even realize how, where I was on the food chain, you know, because I had been, I'd been opening um, virtually the whole time in the, in the club. And so I didn't really have this sense of wanting to climb up the ladder. Right. Like like people do, you know, it's like, well, I got to get to where I can middle. And then I want a headline. I never really cared about any of that because I wasn't going to go anywhere anyway. (laughs) So it's like, what do I, what do I care whether I'm headlining or whether I'm middling, you know, I'm going to stay here with my day job and, and just do this comedy thing because it's kind of fun and I'm getting paid for it. You know, what was your day job at that time? Uh, I worked at a print shop. Okay. And that was, do you still have ties no. to the print shop? No, I had to cut ties with the print shop. Yeah. Um, Just printed out a bunch of $100 bills and walked I out the door. I printed out a bunch of money. <laughs> I printed out some fat stacks and walked out. Um, so what, do you think the people were reaching out to you to do those gigs? It sounds like you weren't actively pursuing those church shows and things, but maybe they had seen you at the comedy club, saw that you were clean, and, you know, there's a, a short list of those kinds of guys. So they, they tracked you down. Yeah. The, some of it, this was long before the internet, you know, and video and YouTube and all of that. And so I had to do some promotion. I would send out some postcards or some letters or I would make contact. But what happened was a friend of mine was doing a preaching um, conference called national preaching. Center, and he asked me to come in and just entertain those guys um, for no money. And so I went in and did that. And that kind of, you know, cracked it open because it's a, it's a fairly small, still kind of a fairly small little uh, market, the church people, and they talk. Right. You know, so you go into this church and you do a good job and this guy knows a couple of other pastors who are looking for something. And so, and so word of mouth was, was how it happened for the most part. And from those the early days when you were doing a lot of MC work and stuff, how did you – because obviously when you do these church things, they're probably 30-minute sets or up to an hour. Uh-huh. At, at what point did you feel you had – because I know we all do an hour before we really have an hour. But right. at, at what point did you feel like you had a solid right. hour where you're like, hey, if they hire me, I'm going to knock this out? Uh, you know, I never really kept track of how much time I had um, because, like I told you, I didn't know how the comedy worked. Uh-huh. And so I didn't know I, I didn't know anything. I didn't know you were supposed to have a certain amount of time. Um, so – 
the first time the first time that I realized I had an hour was kind of by accident. I had a, uh, a guy brought me into Ohio to uh, to do a a set, and after I got there, he said, "Okay, here's how we're going to do it. We're going to have you do like thirty minutes here, and then we're going to take a break and have." lunch or dinner or whatever and then you're going to come back after that and do another 30 and I'm like uh okay <laughs> so so I did the first set and I wasn't paying attention how much time I did and he, so you did about 45 I'm like really okay so now I'm a little nervous during dinner I'm like what am I going to do uh, well, I went up and did another 45 without even thinking about it so I had like 90 minutes of time that I didn't and I didn't know I had it oh wow it was just sort of a matter of because when you do an opening work, you know, it's 15 minutes at a time. It's 10 or 15 minutes at a time. And so you do your set and then you're done. And you don't – I didn't realize that I had, you know, nine different 10-minute sets. No, that's pretty impressive though, to, to well, not, especially to not Because you're not working on that. it all at once. You know, you do this 10 minutes and that kind of becomes your standard set. And so you do it you, – you, and you forget about this other mm-hmm. material that you have. Um, and then when you go to do a, you know, a regular show, it's like, oh, i got to pull out more material – Right, and I just and I realized well, I got more material than I thought I had. So it sounds like I'd only been using it fifteen minutes at a time. Right, so it sounds like you weren't afraid to experiment when you were doing the opening spot and develop new material, which I think a lot of guys. Right. If and it's probably it's because you weren't so worried about moving up the ladder. You know, a lot of guys get that fifteen minutes and they just keep adding more laughs into it. Right. And then the, when they get the feature spot, they still only have those fifteen minutes, and they've got to write fifteen all of a sudden. But you weren't aspiring to. Built, you know, move up the ladder like that. Right. So you probably had no pressure on you when you went to do those opening spots, huh? Yeah, yeah, I didn't care because I wasn't going anywhere. It didn't matter. I was just trying to be as funny as it could possibly be on that particular night, but I had no aspirations of moving on. Right. So that's interesting. So well, you have yeah, and and but I would always do. Uh, I always tried to do something. You know, that's that I'm working on or I haven't developed yet or I have. Or I'm, you know, something new that yeah. I throw out there just because it's frightening and it could go wrong. And it's always good. I think it's good to be kind of, you know, off balance a little bit. I not always know for sure what's going to happen. I do, too. I didn't always feel that way, though. For a long time, I felt like every every time I did a set, I was trying to get work for another set. So I always did like my A stuff. Mm-hmm. And so for a long time, I had a, a chunk of material that stayed the same for a long time. But now... Yep. That is my favorite thing is to you know, throw in a big chunk of, of in-development stuff, especially when it's an open mic or a gig where I'm not getting paid, you know. Right. Uh, and that's kind of the trade-off. If you're not going to pay me, well, you're not going to get the… Yeah, you're not going to get any good comedy. Right, right, right. And so you do that enough, then people stop asking you to do it for free. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People start giving you gas money and spaghetti dinners. Yeah. But I actually like to, you know, I kind of document some of the material that I'm doing uh, through the podcast and… And I've, I've kind of got versions of the joke as it's moved forward throughout time that I'm putting together for an upcoming episode. I just like to see that process and, and getting it in front of other comics and being open to feedback, which I guess I was always open to that, but I never pestered anybody to help me. So if they tell me something, I'd listen to it. But I didn't, now I'm like, hey, I'm going to try out this new bit afterwards. Let me know what, what you would do to change it. Right. Well, you got to be careful about that too, because it needs to be somebody who knows what they're talking about. Oh yeah, that's why I haven't asked you yet. Right. <laughs> well, I understand that. That's why I'm saying. That's why I'm saying that. But yeah, yeah you get you get people who don't necessarily know anything about comedy themselves who are saying, "Well, this is what I would do." Yeah. Although sometimes 
that's where you get a really good nugget because they're, they're telling you something that a comedian would never think of. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and if, if you can say those lines as if you didn't even know you were saying them, kind of a, I call it like a nonlinear thought where you just kind of throw it out as an afterthought. People, uh-huh. What are you thinking though? Because you've got something else brewing in your mind right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's true. That's true. That some, some of the best lines come from people who are not comics. Well, don't you have a, a best friend that you'd like to hang out with and, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the funniest guys in my life is a guy who goes. I go to church with him, and uh, he and his wife come over and we play cards. And he says the funniest things uh, ever. And I, I've told him his name's Jason. I said you could do comedy if you wanted to, and he said I have no interest at all, no desire in doing comedy. And I'm like, all right, I'm taking everything you say. <laughs> you guys keep playing cards. Stage. I'm writing this down. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's important to still surround yourself with – you can become a comedian and only hang out with comedians right? because you've got that shared language and that, that painful backstory and all that kind of stuff. But it's important to have some non-comedian friends in the mix. If you don't spend time around regular people with regular jobs and regular families and mundane tasks, um, then you start to not be able to relate to the audience because you're talking to people who have mundane lives. They right. have jobs and they have kids and they – you know, they don't they're not on the road all the time. And so when my material becomes about airports and hotels, then I know that I'm on the road too much and yeah. I gotta start hanging around regular people. I know. And, and hear their stories about their pets and you know the why the mail was late and all of that uninteresting stuff because that that's what's people's lives. That's true, yeah. That you can definitely tell when a comic's been on the road too long every, every, you know, one of my first songs is about driving a rental car. Yeah, and it, you know it got a good reaction, but it didn't dawn on me till many years later. Like half the people in the crowd have never even driven a rental, right? You know, right. I mean the songs still work, but I was writing it from that roadie kind of perspective. You know, yeah. don't you? And that's why there's so many Waffle House bits and all that other kind of stuff. Yeah, because that's where you're living. You know. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about your writing process now, because you've you've had a lot of uh, cool things happen over the past few years. One was that. Um, the Three Little Pigs bit. I, I don't know what you title that on your CD, but it's it's like a Shakespearean version uh-huh. of The Three Little Pigs. And I'll put that in the show notes so people can link to it. But how did that, without doing the whole bit, you know, how did that start? And then when did you decide to, did you not make it into a book as well? Is that true? I did. Okay, I so did. walk me through that process because I always like to hear how people take an idea from, this could be funny to, hey, this is a book now. Yeah. Well, how it... Uh, I don't, I don't have any idea what's funny until I put it up on stage, and when I finally realized that, uh, it took a lot of pressure off because I used to think that comics are supposed to have this sort of sixth sense when you're you're writing and you're putting things together. It's like, well, this is going to be funny, so this is going in my act, and um, I don't have any idea what's going to work and what's not. The Three Little Pigs is a direct result of me intentionally not trying to be Tim Hawkins. Oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, that's what it is, uh, because I discovered that, you know, when, when you are around successful people, uh, you, start to, you start to sort of emulate those people. It's like, well, what is he doing? Well, Tim does music, so I should do music, too. And it occurred to me, not to take anything away from Tim, he's one of my best friends, but I don't really like parodies. As I was working on them, it occurred to me, it's like, I don't really like this. Now, you can't argue with the success that they have with audiences. But for me personally, uh, 
you know, I don't, I don't like them. And so I said, all right, I'm not doing this because this is not who I am. I don't think this is funny. So I'm going to quit working on this and I'm going to do something else. And I wrote the three little pigs shortly after that, because I thought, okay, this idea I think is funny. Now it sat in my notebook for a long time because I didn't think it was going to work with an audience. It's too long. It's too convoluted. It's a silly idea. Uh, I was sure that it wasn't going to work. Right. In my professional opinion, this is going to be a bomb. And uh, so I, I launched it out on stage in uh, at a church show. Um, I had it in my, it was my, on my list of things to try that I was working on, you know, the new things that I haven't done before. Mm-hmm. And I had already figured out I was going to do the opening line from that. I was going to say the premise. I was going to do the opening line. The audience was going to stare at me like I'd just fallen from space. Right. And then I was going to go, okay, we're going to move on to something else. Right. And that was going to be the end of it. But I did the first line from that story and it got this huge ovation, like an applause break from that line. And I went, and I, I was shocked. I was not expecting that. I said, really? I, I know the whole thing. You guys want to hear it? And they were like, yeah. And so, uh, so I did the whole thing. Can you and, give us just that first opening line so they kind of um, get a taste of it? In time past, though, not long ago, uh, gosh, I can't remember. In time past, though, not long ago, there lived pigs in stature little. And number three, who being of an age both entitled and inspired to seek their fortune, did uh, do so thusly. I think that's it. That's good. That Actually, gives, I can't remember it. Well, that's that's another thing I was going to ask you is it's it's like a theater piece. I mean, it's yeah. it's got blocking, staging, you act stuff out, the whole nine yards. So mm-hmm. uh, after that first church show where they grabbed onto it, did it did it hit some bumps and valleys? Oh, yeah. I didn't know it very well at all. It wasn't uh-huh. very smooth. But that was partially what was funny about it was I told them I, told them I didn't know this. And the whole premise is I'm not smart enough to do children's stories in 16th century, you know, because everybody was smarter back then. Right. And so, so the fact that I kind of bobbled it and fell over it just sort of fit with the whole premise anyway. So it wasn't a big deal, but I'll definitely link to the video of that. And then how long after you'd been doing it where you thought, Hey, this could be a nice little kid's book. Uh, well, the book came about because I was constantly getting people asking me for the script. Uh-huh. Where can I get a copy of the script? Because I want to, I want to perform it, you know, or we're going to do it in class or whatever. And I said, well, they're going to, and I got that request all the time. And so I said, well, maybe I should make some money doing that. Yeah. And uh, so we had some illustrations put together and we just wrote it out. And, and the book still sells two to one over the CD or the DVDs, which kind of s- surprised me. Um, it's kind of inspi- inspiring though, isn't it? That Well, yeah, because people are, um, you know, I, I think, I, I don't know what your take on this is, but I think that video is now so everywhere. You've got YouTube and internet and Netflix and every, and videos just everywhere. And I think that people are going back towards something that isn't necessarily everywhere. A book is a physical thing. You get to hold and turn pages. And, right. um, I and think, so I think there's something yeah. true to that. You know, there's, a, a certain population. I still get the morning newspaper delivered. You know, my, everybody laughs at me, and I said, "Yeah, I'm going to laugh at you when you're done with this." Really? But yeah. I like I like having that texture, and I, you know, I, I take a lot of not a lot. I take enough articles from that paper that I put into my speeches and and comedy and write mm-hmm. jokes around that. I kind of like it's a it's a daily nudge physically that hey, right. here's some potentially creative stuff for you. 
And if I was just going to check the newspaper online or look at headlines on you know USA Today on the computer, I may not pull up the laptop first thing in the morning. And I shouldn't pull up the laptop probably first thing in the morning. All right. So well, you're you're a weirdo. You're an old guy. <laughs> and it also, I think it gives me uh, when I spread out that newspaper, it tells my children stay away. But if I'm looking at the computer, they want to see what I'm looking at. I see. So it's a maybe it's that. It's an, an unspoken barrier. <laughs> yeah, and I could spank them with it too. You try to spank a kid with an iPad. You can. That could be a four hundred dollar mistake. <laughs> now spank a puppy with one too. <laughs> That's funny. So cool. So that evolved into a book. Have you thought about you know? redoing all the children's fairy tales. I'm sure it's crossed your mind. Yeah, it has. In fact, I did a, a follow-up. Oh, um, the old lady. I did, I did Goldilocks. Was. Did you know about that? I did not know. Yeah, it's Goldilocks. Okay. Um, in the same sort of style. I did all the illustrations myself. There you go. You did those illustrations? Yeah, I did. I didn't know it was something you did. Yeah. I, I didn't know it was something I did either. I just... It's one of those things that I said, well, I'm going to take a shot at this. And uh, I kind of liked it when I was. You're a good graphic artist, John Brandon. Those are good. I know. I'm a, I'm a man of many times. Well, here's the thing, Rick. You know, you just know, you don't know what you can do until you start trying. Right. And uh, I had, I didn't know whether I could draw or not. And the thing, the thing is, it's just about style anymore. It's not necessarily, I mean, who knows what's good art and what's bad art. Right, it's just whatever you gravitate towards. Yeah, it's just a matter of style, and some people are going to look at that and they're going to go, "That's awful," and then other people are going to go, "Well, that's really good artwork." And I don't know that either one of them is right. It's just, yeah, that's cool, man. I may have you illustrate some things for me now. Now I'm going to put you to work. I'm affordable. Okay, <laughs> that sounds good. Well, cool. Um, before I let you go, let me ask you a couple other things, and then uh, thanks for your time. You've been. Extra gracious with your time today. I've been great, haven't I? You have been great. Mm -hmm. uh, let me ask you, just because I heard you on another podcast, uh, Tim Hawkins' Potty Break podcast a couple of weeks ago. Let me mm -hmm. ask you about your dad. <laughs> now, I know he's going through some some, some things, and it's, it's, yeah. it's tough to watch, but can you recount the story about him flying the kite? <laughs> I won't give much more away than that, but... I can. Uh... Yeah, my dad, I've got, like I, like I told Tim, I could go for hours and tell stories about my dad uh, and his his manic depressive years. But uh, my dad, the manic depression was something that came along later. We always kind of thought that something was wrong with my dad, like the whole time that I was growing up. He was just odd. He would do weird things. Um, this particular instance was uh in the spring and we were out uh, every, every spring the guys in the neighborhood um would get kites and we would go to the park and we would fly them um and we had a whole neighborhood of mostly of, of all boys there were no girls in our neighborhood so there was you know eight or ten of us that would be out flying kites my dad was watching that once and he goes well i'm gonna i'm gonna fly kites with you boys now the thing about my dad is he would never do anything the way anybody else did things he always had to do it better you know, faster, stronger, you know, whatever, whatever it was. Tim Allen yeah. in him is what it sounds he like. Had to, it always had to be a little bit, yeah, it uh, always had to be a lot better. And and so he got uh, he got a reel of fishing line, whereas the rest of us had 150 feet of string. He had 1,500 feet of fishing line uh, that he put on a, on a fishing pole. He actually put it on a pole 
And he tied his kite to that. And then he proceeded to stand in the front yard with the rest of us and let that kite go. So he reeled out 1,500 feet of, of fishing line kite. Now, the thing is, when you have that much string, uh, the kite is so far away that you can't, you literally can't even see it anymore. Right. So my dad was basically standing in the front yard um, holding a fishing pole and, this, and for no reason. Could, nobody could see the kite. And so people driving past, we lived on a fairly busy street. People driving past, you saw my dad standing out there holding a fishing pole in the middle of the yard, you know, up in the air. And the string just, it, it was, it was gone. It just. It, yeah. I mean, the, was, the fishing line is invisible almost anyway. Right. Right. You couldn't see the fishing line. All you saw was this dude standing out there and the just waving his fishing pole around for no reason. And he did stuff like that all the time. That's, you know, 1500. That's like a, almost a mile. Yeah. A yeah. mile of, of, you know, whenever, when I heard that story, I'm like, man, just what if they, you know, the what ifs, you know, what if the kite had caught in, to an airplane or a helicopter or right. or something, you know, as it descended a semi truck and that, you know, 150 right. pound test line and your dad's 149 and a half pounds or whatever, just all of a sudden he's zipping down the highway. Right. Well, a, the thing, a mile behind the truck. <laughs> the thing about it is that the kite doesn't just go up, it actually goes kind of out right, yeah. at the same time. So it wasn't actually, it probably wasn't 1,500 feet straight up. But it was fifteen hundred feet away in right. some direction, <laughs> so you couldn't see it. And he was—he uh, he, would—he was not self-aware. You know, he wasn't—he would just do things without any regard for, you know, how it affected the rest of mankind and what mankind's impression would be of that. That's, so that's a great story, man. You get a lot of good those good stories. Well. Um, Thanks for sharing with us today. You bet. Where can people find you and more about you if they want to learn about John Brandon? Website, johnbrandon.com. And are you actively on Twitter? I am somewhat active on Twitter. I go through phases. periodic phases of you know, activity, and then I sort of drop out for a while. So, Is, it, is that at John Brandon on Twitter? Or? At John underscore Brandon. Yep. Very good. Well, I'll, let, I'll put that in the show notes so people can track you down. John, I'll see you in a couple of days. All right, Rick. And uh, we'll have some fun. All right, buddy. See ya. I hope you enjoyed that interview with John Brannion. John will be back in a future episode where we give each other a couple of ideas for some jokes we're working on. And then we're going to actually record us doing the jokes that we brainstormed out and then follow up after that to see how we can take the jokes even further. So uh, that could go either way. At the recording of this, I don't know how it went. So uh, I'm putting that out there. Now we're on the hook. We have to air that second episode. It'll either be next week or the week after, just depending on how much time I have to edit that thing together. Last couple of things before I let you guys go today. Uh, I know that uh, I haven't met some of you folks that listen to the podcast, and I'm traveling around this summer. I've got a couple of dates in Ohio and one in Tennessee where I can invite you out to the show. It's not a private event, and I'm happy to always meet some folks. The first opportunity is coming up on Friday. June 17th in Jackson, Ohio, and that's at the Marquee Theater. Uh, it's going to be a fun show. show starts at 8 o'clock. I'll be doing an hour of stand-up and also will be appearing in some way, shape, or form as a Barney Fife impersonator. So if you've never seen that, this is a great opportunity to check that out. I'll put some information in the show notes so you can find out more about that gig. Also coming up on, let's see, June 25th, I'll be in Springfield, Ohio. 
man, it would have been great if the 17th and 18th could have been two Ohio dates. But nope, the way comedy works is you go to Ohio on the 17th, you take a week off, and you go back on the 25th. And that's what's going to happen. Springfield, Ohio, just outside of Dayton, I'll be doing a fundraiser for a sheriff up there, Gene Kelly, running for another term. Uh, very, very good guy. I've worked for him before to raise some funds, and that'll be an afternoon uh, late afternoon show on June 25th in the Springfield, Ohio area. If you'd like to meet me out there, uh, be more happy to give you some more information. You can check out information on that on my own website, rickroberts.com, or at schooloflaughs.com in the show notes for this episode. And lastly, if you're in the Nashville area, I will be at Zany's headlining on Thursday, June 30th as part of the Clean Comedy Series. I believe tickets are around $15 or something like that for that show. Also, I know Brian Bates, who you may have you know, recognized from the podcast episodes in the past. He'll be on that show as well. If you want to find out more information on those shows, you can always call up Zany's Ticket Booth at 615-269-0221 and ask about the June 30th Clean Comedy Show with Rick Roberts. Come on out and see me there. Let me know you're coming so I can look for you. And in the meantime, thanks again for listening to this podcast, for all your support, and I will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit SchoolofLaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay money.